Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and on the podcast, we discuss all aspects of technology and life in international schools, with new episodes live every two weeks. We focus on people who are currently working in schools, and we talk about life in their current country and dive into some specific topics. The podcast is brought to you by Acer for Education. People always ask what Chromebooks we recommend and what Windows laptops we recommend, and after trying literally all of them, we always recommend Acer. If you'd like to get more info and try out some devices, please just go to gg.gg forward slash Acer Education. That's gg.gg forward slash Acer Education, and we'll get right back to you. Also, the podcast is brought to you by Apps Events. We're a Google partner. We work all around the world. We've just got one piece of new information right now. This is in, in January 2021. We're a G Suite Enterprise for Education partner. That's Giuseppe. This is a bunch of premium tools available to people using Google at their schools. We can help you get set up with a free one-month trial. So please check out the link in the show notes, and we'll do that right away. And now, on to the interview. Hello and welcome to the International Schools Podcast. My name is John Micton and today uh, co-host and friend Dan Taylor is away, so I'll be doing this alone. I'm very excited to have uh, our guest today, Dr. Carlos Davidich, who is a expert on neuromanagement and a doctor and does a lot of work with international schools, companies, CEOs, a lot about uh, leadership, leadership capacity, uh, team dynamics, and of course, in this context, leading through crisis and transition. So Carlos, first of all, thank you so much for taking time to join us on the International Schools Podcast. Thanks to you, John, for inviting me. I mean, I'm delighted to be here in this podcast and to be connected with the international school community. So Carlos, maybe before we really dig into the, the meat of the conversation and the uh, article that we're going to refer to that is in the show notes, maybe just give us, uh, our, our listeners, a quick overview of your professional journey, who you are, where you're from, and a context. Why are you doing what you're doing? Okay, okay. I will try to be brief, just in a nutshell. Uh, I'm born and raised in Argentina. I'm coming from two different areas, let's say, of profession. I'm a medical doctor, I'm MD, and I was working as MD for many years. And at the same time, I was working in pharmaceutical business, but mainly only in the area of biotechnology. So it's quite specific, it's quite science fiction, that we used to call it. And uh, that gave me all the experience in leadership and in leading teams and people and, and how organization works. Um, in 2000, I moved to Europe and I had to reinvent it myself. And those were the time I moved to what I'm doing today. Everything connected with leadership development and this and coaching. I do a lot of executive coaching or groups or one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. But also, I uh, involved in what John's already, you, John, already mentioned, this neuromanagement stuff. In few words, is how to apply all the latest, all the latest finding coming from neuroscience in organizations. What I do is try to bridge those two worlds. So I lived in Europe for 12 years, and then I was invited to move to Canada. And I was living seven years in Canada, doing exactly the same work, giving lectures, workshops, and coaching. 
And now I'm back in Europe and I'm really enjoying this a lot. So I think in a nutshell, that will be enough. Great. Thank you so much. So we are going to actually focus on an article that you wrote with some colleagues called Leading Through Crisis and Transition. And it's a COVID-19 toolkit to help you lead with strength, intention, and grace. And really, this is, uh, as the document and the article states, is a uh, free source for leaders committed to building healthy and resilient organizations. And I think what I really, uh, what really resonates with me in this document is it's, it's not about really the COVID pandemic. I think the COVID pandemic is just one example of a crisis or a transition that leaders have had to juggle and curate over the last 14 months. And there've been a lot of challenges with it and there've been a lot of rich learnings. But I think what is so important is leaders and actually pretty much anybody that is in a school context working with students, be it adults, uh, parents, or the larger community, often there are different types of crises. Some are bigger than others, but they often can be interpreted as a challenge and a transition that you might have to navigate, be it a classroom teacher, be it a principal, a school director, a board member. And I think what is so interesting about the document, Carlos, is the way you've set it up. It really gives the reader a kind of a background about the importance of understanding the brain. And then how does that transition into your work experience? And what are some concrete things that you can do as an individual to leverage your capacity to engage with these crises or this trauma as in the current situation of the pandemic. So Carlos, I think one of the things that you really talk about in the article is what really everything starts is understanding the brain and recognizing your old and new brain. Could you talk to us a bit about this concept of having an old brain and a new brain and let's build with that uh, on how we move forward as leaders. Perfect, John. So this is a quite, I, I like to call it a framework in the way I understand the brain. In the article was, let's say, summarized as the old and the new. The situation itself is a little bit more complex, but anyway, that helps and is useful. So personally, I refer that we have more than one brain. What we know thanks to McLean, a guy that described for the first time that nature through evolution didn't replace brains, was adding one over the other. This is a metaphor, of course. It's not that, that we can split the brains you know, in parts. I mean, it's not like that. Today, all of them are intertwined, yeah? You know, let's go. But the point is, there is an old brain, very old, that has 500 million years with us. And this brain is what is called the reptilian or lizard brain. And mainly is in charge of instinct, is the instinctual reaction or those automatic processes that we don't need to think about it because the body already knows what to do. So in any survival reaction or survival mode reaction, the reptilian brain will be activated and can be, let's say, uh, synthesized in, in three aspects. So we'll try to fight, to flight, or to freeze 
depends on the circumstances. The new brain, or let's say the rational brain, that we call the rational brain, is the one that we inherit, let's say, or we developed uh, from mammals, of course, but has in the, in the way we understand this brain has 100,000 years maybe. So if you think about 100,000 years versus 500 million years, oh my God, this is nothing. So, and what are the connotation of this? Number one, we still trust our old brain as the one that can help us and save us. So at the moment that we feel under threat or we feel in we are in an uncertain situation like the, the pandemic is, was and is, so the reptilian brain will react and will take control. What are the consequences of the reptilian brain taking control? That the brain will deactivate the rational brain. Once one is activated, the other one has to be deactivated. That is okay if I need to run away from a snake or from a lion, or, you know, but nowadays it's not so useful anymore. Not in the same way that in our past. So that's why we need to take care and be aware which brain is in control. Because the reptilian brain can put us in a very complicated situation. Uh, connecting this with the pandemic, uh, just in a very, very simple way, the first reaction worldwide was the famous toilet paper situation. The toilet paper situation is a reptilian reaction, very, very basic. Basic needs, I don't need to explain. But short after, when the rational brain was able to take over, to, to be back in some kind of control, we, were start, we understood that the only way to get out of this situation, and we are still struggling, I know that, is helping each other, is through collaboration, is through altruistic actions. Makes sense, just as an example of how the two brains can uh, behave in such a different way. John, I think that's okay, or you tell me, I can give more info. No, no, I, what I think is really interesting is that how you transfer this to the idea of the toilet paper and how, you know, if one brain is engaging, the other one isn't. And the problem with that is sometimes very likely you have to have a certain amount of uh, metacognition to understand you're going into that kind of brain and then that might not serve you well in the way you react to a situation and how do you mitigate that and get into the other brain that's more rational maybe more thoughtful and maybe not as kind of fight and flight and I think that to me is kind of the creative tension how do you manage that as an individual when you are in a crisis or you're reacting to something that gives you that kind of old brain or reptilian brain reaction, what, what, what do you, can you do to stop those triggers? I think that to me is the big challenge. I will say that, th let's think in this way. I can have a dog that is, is trained to attack, you know, I mean, to defend, my, to defend me, I mean, and then to attack in certain circumstances. But who is in control, the dog or me? So if it's a circumstance I need that the dog will protect me, I will decide, let's say, I will give the order. 
And then I will use the capacity of that dog or the reptilian brain. But still, I am in control. The first step to be able to manage this situation is to be aware who is in control in each moment. It's not complicated. Just we need to know the pattern of each brain in the way that they, they express themselves. For instance, reptilian brain activated means tunnel vision. I cannot see the big picture. Is I will generalize threat, their threat. So when I feel fear, anything can be dangerous right now. I will be more focused on pessimism, not an optimism. Yeah, because I need to think on the worst scenario possible. Going back to your question and how what to do to be back in control, we have one characteristic as a human that is called metacognition, metacognition. Metacognition is thinking about thinking. It's our capacity to observe ourselves from outside. When I'm doing something and in, that, in one moment I'm asking myself, what am I doing? That is metacognition. So I don't want to become, to become philosophical, but the question is, who am I? Who am really? I mean, am I the reptilian brain? No way. Am I the rational way? Well, maybe not. I am some, I am a, I am a being in charge of both of them. Metacognition is that being. Let me call it by now our mind, okay? So the, the rational brain and the reptilian brain are part of the hardware of the brain. So are the structures that are located in specific areas of my brain. But let me use the word mind to uh, apply, let's say, to that capacity to observe myself and to make decisions, not just to follow instant. Make sense? Absolutely. And that's a great segue because in this wonderful uh, article that you wrote and that actually could be used as a bit of, it's almost like a tutorial leading through crisis and transition, uh, you talk about so once you, you know, you understand this dynamic of the old and, and new brain and you kind of have internalized that, then the, the, the other thing is about uh, emotions, working with your emotions, because tied to these reactions come a bunch of emotions. And the, the thing that you highlight is whatever emotions you have, be they difficult or easy, they don't disappear. They're part of you. They're there. And you really hear say that emotions lead the way and really the idea is how can you work with those emotions understanding what you're experiencing how does it impact attention what is your first action impulse these aspects become another important thing to be mindful of could you talk a bit about juggling this the emotional side Okay, now we are introducing the third brain that we have in our skull. There are not two, there are three. This is what evolution did with us. So the most primitive, the reptilian, the one that we inherit from big mammals like apes and horses is what we call the emotional brain. Technically called the limbic, doesn't matter, but the emotional brain, I mean, 
To be honest, emotions are everywhere in our body, in our, in our brain, but the headquarter is in this emotional brain, a second brain. One thing that is hard to accept, mainly in organization, is how much are we influenced or how much are we driven by our, our emotions? The problem is that the word emotional has a very negative component or connotation. We say when somebody's emotional, we say it in a negative way. And it's not exactly what I'm talking about. One quote from Antonio Damasio, he is a neuroscientist living and working in San Diego in the US. I think that represents so well this, this situation of our brain. He says, we are not rational being that feel, but emotional being that think. So what is driving our behavior are our emotions. We, we act upon our emotions. And I want to add one more component. The word emotion and the word motivation, emotion and motivation, they have the same Latin root. They mean the same. If we analyze the words, it has the same meaning. And the meaning is to take action, movere in Latin, or to take action. Therefore, every time that we do something, that we action something, we are mobilizing some kind of emotions. Then let's stop repressing emotions or let's stop trying to put emotions at the side because it's impossible. I coach a lot of leaders and the first thing they say, I'm a very rational person. Of course, I start laughing because human brain, human brain cannot make a decision that is 100% rational. Human brain is not prepared for that. Every time that we make a decision, some kind of emotions are involved. Make sense? Absolutely. And I think that's what's so interesting is that uh, as, you, as your anecdote is often people are like, well, no, I'm not emotional. I'm really rational. I'm very grounded. I'm very matter of the fact. I'm very black and white. But I think what I'm hearing is, even in the black and whiteness that you might have in the rationality, there's emotions taking place. And one thing that you talk about is that one of the things that often people don't do is they maybe have emotions and they have these triggers and they're in a, in a situation where there's a lot of emotion flying around and emotions always there because as you said, motion, emotion has to do with action movement. You talk about the idea of labeling, naming those emotions. Tell us a bit about why naming our emotions might be an important step. That is, is a way to, I will say, to connect the emotion with the rational side. At the moment I can name that emotion, my rational brain knows what to do. So again, remember, now we are talking about three brains, reptilian, emotional brain, and rational brain. And the question still is the same, who is in control? 
So the rational brain, the, the, the figure, the, the, the analogy of how they're supposed to work is a chariot, you know, a chariot. Mm -hmm. The chariot itself repre is represented by a reptilian brain. The horses that are moving the chariots are the emotional brain. And the driver should be the rational brain. This is the ideal situation. That's a great analogy. Yeah. Is that happening all the time? Sure not. <laughs> and we know when we are driven by emotion, when we are driven by instinct, and the pandemic was such a, I would say, um, representation, clear representation. How can we be driven only or mainly by our reptilian brain our emotional brain, or when we start thinking, let's say, by the rational brain. Makes sense so far? It does. It does. And, and I like this analogy of the horse, the cart, and the driver. And what, I thought, what I'm finding resonating is that you always want the driver to be in control, but sometimes the horse is and sometimes the cart is. And I think that's something that, you know, we need to be a little more uh, honest with ourselves is that we need to understand when what is in, in the lead and being able to actually label that. And you talk about, so we've, we've understood the old and new brain. We understand we have these three brains and that there's these emotions and the importance about the emotions is understand uh, what's going on and then being able to name that experience, to give it a defined, uh, you know, word or sentence or just an awareness that you actually are in that space. And then you talk about expressing what you're feeling, where you're basically you've recognized and named your experience or the emotion. And now it you say it's time to express it and give the emotion what it needs. What does the emotion need? So first of all, needs a room and space to be understood. So what I want to say is when, I, when we, one technique that's very useful, is, is very broadly used in psychology, is naming the emotion. What kind of emotion do you have right now? Because if I try to, if I'm able to define the emotion, that is a sign that I'm in control. I'm, I'm able to analyze what is going on with me. Therefore, the rational brain is in control. Therefore, I'm applying metacognition. So I'm, I'm anger. I mean, it's anger what I feel. It's fear what I feel. It's shame what I feel that, that happened, of course, in these times. So what am I feeling? And then I can, I would say, apply tools to deal with those emotions, make sense? So uh, it's not about expressing or not expressing emotion. The emotions are expressed by itself, they express by itself. But when I name them, my rational brain will be able to put it in the right bucket and then to find the right tool to deal with it. So really what you're saying in many ways is to tell your own story of yourself. Be aware what is that story and identify what is it is. And then with that, use some of these tools that you mentioned. And one thing that I know that you talk about is that, you know, for leaders, one of the tips to think about is having these four questions is how did I feel overall today on a scale of one to ten? What emotions did I experience? How many emotions influenced my communications, decisions, behavior today? What's one action I can take tomorrow to support my team? 
Tell me, why are going into these kind of questions helpful? From your experience coaching school leaders, uh, company leaders, what, what is it about having that discipline of using these kind of questions? What, what have you seen as evidence of that helping? First of all, those are very practical uh, tools that will bring, me, will bring the control back to my healthiest side in my brain. So I will be in control. I can, I can do something in a better way. But you brought another concept, John, that I want to highlight, and I really want to comment, comment on this. You talk about we tell our own story. This is very important. And in the same article, uh, I mentioned Albert Ellis, that he was a psychologist, and he was the one who was able to define something called the ABC model. He was the one who said, Okay, A stands for adversity, the event. Let's say the pandemic, okay? For instance, that is, that, that is the event. C stands for consequences. And what our brain does, more primitive brain does, is always to connect the consequences with the event or the adversity. Albert Ellis says that is wrong. And I love his approach. He says the consequences of any event or adversity depends on B. Remember, IBC model depends yeah. on B. And B, B stands for belief. So it's not about the event. It's how I understand the event and how I build a story around the event or from the event. And this is so powerful because I like, there is a quote I like always to, to share saying, beware or take care how you're talking to yourself because you are listening. So we are influencing ourselves in the way we tell the story. And when I'm saying we are influencing ourselves, I mean, we are creating different emotional impacts. And to make it simpler, I mean, uh, we understand that the same situation, the same external situation can be positive for one person and can be very negative for the other person. So it's not about the, the, the situation is or the event. It's about the people's event or people's life. And it's about how they impact those people, particularly in that moment. Makes sense so far? It does. So, and what's interesting, I think, that you just said is not it's not about the consequence. It's about your belief in reaction to the situation and that we all construct our own story. And that's what I think is really interesting, because when you get in a room with five, six different people that are trying to manage a crisis or a situation or a trauma, they're all coming in with slightly different stories. So how do you as a group come together and build a common story then to lead through? Absolutely. So the point is, I, I, I mean, I need, I, need, I need to share this. Sorry, John. Two, two things. Number one, I need to bring Viktor Frankl to the scene. Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist in Vienna last century, and he went, you know, through the most, I would say, uh, terrible, I mean, uh, experience in life for a civilian, that he was in a concentration camp in Germany for three years. 
based on one observation, just in one observation in the concentration camp, he was able to understand a, a key concept of human behavior. Even though, based on that, he was able to create a new path in psychology called logotherapy. But I will just refer the quote, the quote of Victor Frank. He used to say, everything, absolutely everything can be taken from, our, from us, from myself, except one thing. My power or my decision on how to react to that external situation. The way I react always will be my choice. This is another way to say the way I build the story is still my choice. And something that is so negative, like the pandemic, I'm not, please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that, wow, fantastic, the pandemic was great. No, please don't get me wrong. So many people died. So many things were really, really complicated and, and terrible during this year that still is not over. But being in the middle of the storm, still we can build one story that can help us to overcome that situation or to deal with that situation in a better way. Makes sense. And it, it does. depends how I build that story about, let's say, the pandemic or why I am, am I, I am in the, in the middle of the storm. That story has an emotional impact and can have a positive emotional impact or a negative emotional impact. And, and I, I'm sorry to interrupt yeah, you, please, but what please. Is, I think is really important is this idea of what Victor says is that so often people say, oh, because of your behavior, I reacted negatively. No, it's I chose to react negatively. I was in control how I reacted. And so often people will point their finger at them being upset or their reaction is causational because somebody did something to them. And I think that to me is a really interesting concept and also something that maybe not, many, not everyone is aware of that we actually control every step of our reaction. That's our, we own that. That implies a lot of courage, accountability, and getting far away from a victim mode or a victimhood. Yes. People, at the moment I understand that concept, I'm in control, I'm in power. And that is the best position I can have. But many people, and John, you know what I'm talking about, many people, they prefer to blame others, to wait for the savior, and to keep that pathological or vicious circle of victim, perpetrator, and savior, that it doesn't help at all. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I would like to, sorry, is any other question? Because I, I, want to talk, I want to talk about something happened during the pandemic that maybe we don't see it, people don't see it exactly in that way. Go ahead, please. All these conspiracy theories, all these stories about the virus, around the virus, that the truth is that we don't know how it really started, that's the truth, or at least closer to the truth. All those stories are, are delicatessen for the reptilian brain. <laughs> I don't know if I, I'm explaining myself. All no, those no, stories, 
all the stories about conspiracy, all the stories that the enemy is there, that everything was prepared, whatever you want to call it, those are the best food for the reptilian brain. Because we'll keep in very good shape the feeling of fears and being under threat. So I'm not saying it's true or it's not true. I'm saying just supporting those conspiracy theories only helps to keep the vicious circle circle of negativity and will block our possibility to overcome this situation. Interesting. And, and I think that's, you know, because conspiracy theories and fake news were so prominent exactly. uh, throughout this whole pandemic. And, you know, we have uh, examples of world leaders also falling into uh, fake news or, you know, kind of stoking the fire. I think that's such an important observation to understand that, especially in the context of this situation where, uh, because there were so many unknowns and uncertainties, everybody was starting to build whatever story worked for them. And unfortunately, some news media outlets and politicians also leveraged that as a tool and weapon in some way. So I think it's so important highlighting that. Thank you, Carlos. In this journey of... I'm sorry, uh, there is one more component I need to explain right now, if you let please. me... Please, yeah, of course, of course. Why the brain needs, so, the reptilian brain needs so much those or the brain? those fake news because facing uncertainty is one of the worst situation for the brain the brain is not good dealing with uncertainty and uncertainty was the name of the game in this pandemic what the brain does when it's facing so much uncertainty is trying to give to make sense of the situation so start creating stories. The brain doesn't care that the story is real or is fake. The only thing that the brain cares about that makes sense. So this is another component of why all the fake news, the fake news, if you just listen to them, they make sense. All of them. And for the brain, that that is very, I would say, uh, calm, I mean, gives calm to the brain and the brain say, okay, now I understand, now I can deal with this because this makes sense and I don't care if it's true. And what's amazing is that, so you go on the internet and you've kind of picked up on a story and it makes you feel less uncertain and then the algorithms take over and make sure to amplify that multiple times in different venues, which is, I think, the bigger problem that we face. You know, if you if you believe in a, in a conspiracy and you're just isolated in your room and you're thinking about it and it feels good, it's just when it gets amplified over social media and uh, that becomes far more complicated and at times very damaging. Uh, and I think this uncertainty is what so many of us dealt with. And I think I know in the conversations we've had leading up to this podcast is the fact that nobody's ever really experienced this. This is also new. There's not like a guidebook or some point of reference. Okay, there's a 1918 Spanish flu, but really how much you know of that generation can really guide us. So I think this uncertainty and the way you describe it is so important. You, you, you know, one thing that we so often in uncertainty and in a pandemic and as leaders in schools or organizations, we only have 24 hours in a day. 
And of course, time management becomes really important, especially in a crisis or where you're dealing with some traumatic situations, you know, making sure that the time management and the sequence of things that you're doing, you're reacting, supporting, uh, reaching out to people, showing empathy really are important. But you actually say it's not the time management that's important, but the energy management. So talk to us a bit about the energy management. I, I like to present that all of us working in organization, for sure, for sure we went through a time management training somehow. And that is the wrong target because nobody, absolutely nobody can manage time. Time is a fixed factor in the equation. 24 hours is 24 hours, exactly like you said it. But what we do all the time what our body does all the time is to manage energy or to balance energy if you want. Or I will say it's called energy budgeting, also another way to present it. So I'm tired, I rest. I, have, I feel with energy, I do more. Knowing more and more how my body works, I can leverage better that energy management uh, orientation of focus. And what we need to know, that's also referred in the article, is that our body has different rhythm, different cycles. So there are times during the day that we will feel, let's say, low in energy, we want it or not, independently of what are we doing, because the body needs those that we call rest time to do a very powerful process. When we are resting, the brain is not resting. The brain is doing something I like to call a data backup storage information. <laughs> is the equivalent to click save in the computer. What the brain does when we are resting is organizing the files in different files the experience that we went through or the learning or the study or whatever. So there are two specific cycles during the day. One is called the circadian rhythm. Maybe you heard about it. Mm -hmm. That is a little bit longer. It's, it's a peak of energy in the morning or in the afternoon. Depends on the personality. I'm an owl, so my peak of energy is in the afternoon. But anyway, in the morning, they have energy. But there is a moment during the day that is normally is at noon, between 12 or 2 or 1, 12 and 1. Yeah, it's two, a couple hours at noon. That is the lowest level of energy in my body. So in that time, I need to avoid to do anything that will require a, lot, a lot of, large amount of energy because high probability to fail high probability to be even more tired. And if I need to do something that requires a lot of accuracy and there is a deadline, don't do it at noon, please. <laughs> another, another rhythm or cycle is called ultradian. It's shorter. Every 90, to, from 90 to 120 minutes, let's say 100 minutes, the brain will shut off for 15 to 20 minutes. We want it or not, <laughs> we like it or not, the brain needs that time 
to do the other job or the other work I told you, to organize the information. So if we can organize our day, that's my recommendation I give to, to leaders, to people in general. Organize, program your cell phone, your mobile phone, every 100 minutes that will ring. And when the mobile phone is ringing, stop whatever you're doing and change activity for something lighter for 15 minutes. And then go back to the hard work. When you can keep this routine or this, this, uh, yeah, this behavior, in a couple of weeks, you will see very practically the, how your effectiveness goes up and your productivity goes up and your energy goes up. This is no magic. This is how the brain works. And I think that's so interesting because during the day we get up and I'm just thinking of many colleagues and uh, educators and leaders around the world. And it's a bit like being on a treadmill. We start running yeah. and we run and we might know that our energy is down, but we still say, oh, we got a half hour here between two meetings. Let me quickly meet that person in that time. And I think that's so powerful. I think also, you know, sending an email on a Friday afternoon at four announcing bad news or expecting people to react is not uh, always that constructive. So I think your uh, breakdown of just highlighting this idea after 100 minutes, give yourself a, a break of 15 minutes, because even if you don't, your brain's not going to be doing anything. And that's kind of important, especially with kids that are in classes, maybe a double period, you know, or 120 minutes and those things. And just, I think that, that uh, this idea of the circadian uh, rhythms and, and being mindful of that is so important. And I really like the way you uh, suggest using your digital device to support you and just every hundred minutes just ring and say, hey, by the way, it's time to give yourself a break. So we've kind of gone on this journey, Carlos, and it's just absolutely fascinating, you know, about the brain, the emotions, naming them, uh, understanding who's in control, and then also at the same time realizing that uh, there is this idea of optimizing your energy. Now, one of the things that you talk about is that, you know, as you are working in organizations and you're navigating this as a human being, all these emotions and uh, this, these issues, you talk about the, the organizational purpose and then reevaluating your why. Kind of, it, it's kind of the idea that you say, leaders, it's time to bring your full human self to work. What does authentic leadership look like? Talk to me a bit about that. This goes to, I would say, an essential components of human behavior. And at the same time, and this was found out by the MIT that did a research on the key motivators of people at work. One of the key motivators is to understand the purpose, the why. Why I'm spending eight, 10, 12 hours a day in this job. Why I'm doing this. I work a lot with my coaches when I coach people to define the why from time to time. Because the why is like a, the, 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 I would say is the driver. The, the why is the reason I feel 
or I will use my energy to do something. I need to understand the why the brain needs to make sense about everything. That's what I told you. And purpose is the, I would say, the, the, the king of the, of, of, the, of the sense, you know what I mean? Why, why I'm, I'm working when I'm working? How many times, how many people at the moment they were not able to define the why, the purpose, they decided to change the job or to change activity or to do whatever else in life. One, in, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of this, I would say, extreme universal situation, it's very important to define the why. Why I need to keep doing what I need to do, why I will keep uh, being part of this team and working in this organization. And I highly recommend leaders to practice the why with their, te uh, with their team quite often. And it's a very, very nice way to start bringing people on board after all this uh, online life that we are having. And now it's maybe we'll be in hybrid when the schools is different because you need to go to school. So you, you went, I mean, you were moving earlier to, to the previous situation. But let's make something clear. And you, you said it, John. Absolutely nobody on earth went through this situation ever. Therefore, we need to be also accountable and mindful that we are recreating or reinventing the new reality. The concept, and I heard it many times, and I said it many times, when are we going to be back to normality, to the previous state? It's absolutely an illusion. There is no way to go back to our previous reality. And I will tell you what, even though we will keep, maybe we will go back to do the same. It will look like the same. Will never be the same because our mind and our brain changed. And I think this is where there is this kind of almost grief process going as people come to terms because you hear this. Many educators, rightly so, are saying, when can I get back into my classroom, see my kids' faces? You know, that is only natural. They want to go back to something that's familiar, that's a known quantity. And I think as people and this pandemic is lasting longer, I know we have vaccines and everything, but now we're talking about the Delta variant. And there's just a lot of uncertainty still. And I think this gradual realization that no, we're never going to go back to what was tomorrow is almost like a grief process. And I think that's where maybe people struggle and they need that time to kind of get their heads around it and even meditate a bit about, okay, what does it mean about, you know, moving forward in this context? And I think a lot of people uh, are challenged by that. And I think what this article does for me is really give some concrete uh, points of reference to build a better understanding and then maybe as you and, and we haven't gone into all the details but you have a lot of tools and you have a lot of little tips that I think would definitely be things that people would want to refer to you you, you know so the why and the purpose is so important because you know 
it's interesting. I was just watching a documentary about 1971, and they were interviewing one of these so, uh, soldier in a trench in Southeast Asia, and he was like, "I have no idea why I'm here." I mean, he mm-hmm. had no idea, and you could sense that he's just waiting time, and then he gets home. But there's no purpose, even if the purpose was bad or good. Yeah. Yeah. He was kind of in this limbo, and I think that so often. Uh, the challenge is leaders, how do we construct a clear purpose that people can connect to intrinsically and make it their own purpose so we all have this common purpose? And I think one of the things you talk about is these two things, is this idea of building psychological safety and yeah, environments okay, and then leading with determination, defining the framework, setting communicate clear goals, and quiet your fear of making a mistake. So these, this, it's you call it the great transition. Talk to us a bit about this great transition as leaders and educators and company leaders or people in organizations. Okay, so one thing I want to let's say explain a little bit then uh, of uh, what we are saying. When, we, when I don't want to sounds dramatic when i'm saying it's impossible to go back to the previous situation i say it in a positive way i say it in a way that we through the pandemic we learned a lot we we grew a lot we liked it or not so we went through such experience that changed the way we are seeing and perceiving and behaving so in that way, we cannot go back to the previous situation. Of course, externally will be the same, going back to school, to, to, to class, and so on and so forth. But, but we will never be the same person. That's what I want to just highlight or clarify a little bit. Now, let's go back to the, your, your last question. Let's, let's be mindful, like we are, about the, situa- the situation that we are going through, a situation that really puts the world upside down. That one component of this uh, pandemic was uncertainty, but health was the key issue, everything around health. Am I able to survive? I'm going to survive. How many people die in this circumstance? So there is another component that makes the whole story quite scary, right? Now, it seems like hey, we are, f- thanks to the vaccinations and everything, we are coming back to certain, let's say, normality. What we need to take into account as priority to help people to come and be on board in the right way. Number one, we talked about define with your team the purpose. Why? You are doing what do I doing? What are you doing? But as a leader, you need to take into account that to bring people on board, to bring people back on board, they need to feel safe. Safety is a key component of the new reality, feeling safe. And feeling safe, I'm not talking about health-wise. Well, physical health-wise. I'm talking about mainly mental health-wise. So feeling safe means I'm in a place, I can express my emotion, I can express my ideas, 
I can share what's going on. I can ask questions. I will never be embarrassed, punished, or put in a way at a side because I'm participating. I'm bringing my, my, myself to the field. Make sense what I'm saying? Tell yes, me if absolutely. I'm on the right track. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So psychological safe environment or psychological safe workplace is can be represented for those places where people will admit mistakes without problem because we learn from mistakes will participate with others and in a very in a safe environment people become more innovative and creative because i i feel safe and nobody will criticize me one I will say one uh, sign that shows exactly the opposite place when people don't feel safe is when they start playing victim, when they start blaming others about any mistake, when they start criticizing or over-criticizing or criticizing in a negative way. And leaders should be able to identify very fast, very quickly, you know, hey, 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 this person is not feeling safe. What can we do to go back on track? Make sense? It does. And I think what is challenging, uh, I think many leaders agree to what you're saying, that it's important to create an environment where people can be honest and make mistakes and mistakes are looked at uh, as a learning opportunity, that it's not a negative thing. Actually, mistakes are good because if you make mistakes, you're always improving, you're always enhancing. But the problem is often for heads of schools or directors or CEOs of companies, that becomes very complicated because the stakes are so high. So actually, you can't make a mistake, but everybody else can. <laughs> That's a, that is a great, great, great point. Great point. So, um, okay, so you, based on what you're commenting, I would like to bring another concept. And the concept is a concept that I think is not in article in that one, of vulnerability. Yes. What happened if I'm the leader, I'm the head of the school over here, or the principal of the upper school or lower school, and I show vulnerability, I show myself vulnerable. And this is one of the most paradoxical situations that I like really to comment or to refer. The person, for the person that shows or is what, I mean, can show him or herself vulnerable, they think that they are showing weakness. And what we learn, mainly through the researchers Brené Brown, that she was a researcher working on vulnerability, that the impact is exactly the opposite. Any leader that is able to show vulnerability, the impact is showing strength. It's showing that is able to do it, that is able to talk about it. And that transmits a very positive feeling and has a very positive impact. We need to remember, and I think there's another, another uh, takeaway from Brene Brown's work, what exactly vulnerability means, you know? 
Because vulnerability in the way she defined is about uncertain, is about risk, and is about emotional exposure. If you put all these three components together, those components are the one defining vulnerability. Therefore, we are in an uncertain world, so there are many risks, and we are emotionally exposed. So this is, I, what I want to say is there is no way, there is no way to avoid vulnerability because vulnerability is part of our life. And I think that's what I, is so important is to understand that that vulnerability is not about being weak, but it's about this uncertainty. It's, it's this situation that we're in right now where, you know, we need emotion and also understand there's this uncertainty. So I, I think, you know, that is one of the challenges that I think many leaders and even educators in a classroom is, you know, who's the boss and how do you navigate giving more voice and choice and then still being in control. And, and that I think is the challenge that many leaders and uh, organizations face when they're uh, trying to move forward. And, and, you know, they have this why, they have the purpose and people are all kind of watching. And I think sometimes we're very unforgiving, uh, even though we want everybody to be forgiving towards us. And I think that's, it's, it's kind of this empathy. Carlos, I'm just mindful of time, and this has been absolutely fabulous. Just to make sure, this document that will be in the show notes is also available, right? You can get it off the internet, or is this, how, where could people get it if they wanted to access it? We'll put it in our podcast show notes. It's called Leading Through Crisis and Transition, a COVID-19 Toolkit to Help You Lead with Strength, Intention, and Grace. Uh, can, first of all, it's, it's absolutely, I mean, available. It's open to anyone and it's free. Uh, I cannot tell you if it's in any website or to, to, okay. to download it. I think that is good that you will put it on, on the page. Yeah, we'll put it up and make sure. And if people can always reach you, Carlos is on yes. LinkedIn and yes. he's on Twitter. And we've got the handles in the show notes. So make sure to connect out to him. Carlos, I know we're running out of time and we could talk for hours on this. Any closing thoughts that you have for anybody that is listening and is somebody that's going to try to support, mentor, coach, facilitate, lead a group of other people, be it in an organization, in a classroom, or in a school? Just, you know, what are some of your closing thoughts? Maybe just a little tip or some reflections before we wrap up. Okay. <laughs> no pressure. Let's see. No pressure. No, Carlos. <laughs> First of all, I think it's the best time to organize these group meetings in school, for instance, school, and not to give solutions, not to provide answers, just to let people vent, to let people talk. What are the, I will say, the key goals of objective to bring people back at work in a good shape? Of course, is to build trust. And to build trust is one of the key, is the key components of feeling safe. So I would like to end with a quote I read the other day, and I think that was really fantastic. We are... Definitely, we are in the same storm. So we share the same situation, all of us. 
worldwide. But we are not on the same boat. What I'm trying to highlight here is we need to recognize the individual needs. We know that there will be many mental issues, of course, because the situation was re is really traumatic, but also we can support other people or emotional situations that we can support that they don't need it, let's say, in a specialist. But for that, we need to understand and to move from we are on the same boat that we are not on the same boat. Even though we're going through the same situation, each of us are reacting in different ways. Let's be mindful of that and let's listen with high level, higher level of empathy. And I think that's such a great way to end on this fantastic conversation because I think too often as leaders, we get in a room and people highlight uh, pinch points and challenges and things that are going well. And then suddenly we all suddenly go into panic mode and need to fix everything and we're exhausted. And actually, they're not really happy with the way you did it anyway. <laughs> Instead of maybe just listening and letting them speak and just hearing and showing good posture and eye contact and paraphrasing really can be the way just to give that space because everybody right now needs some space to vent and just say, this has been tough. Let me share you how I'm feeling. So okay. Carlos, on your wise words about we're all in the same ocean, but on different boats, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, really good to get some ideas of what we're all experiencing. And even though it might relate to COVID, I think everything that you shared is very uh, valuable uh, in any context where you're coaching, facilitating, mentoring, and leading other individuals, be it in a school organization or a corporate organization. Thank you, Carlos. Thanks to you, John. I really enjoyed it a lot. And it was very, very nice sharing all this stuff with you. Great. Show notes will have the different links and information to get out uh, and reach to Carlos and, of course, the PDF that we've been talking about. Thank you so much. We look forward to seeing you at our uh, next podcast. Have a great weekend. Ciao.